The uh, committee will come to order, and uh, thank you so much, uh, all of you who are attending today. And we're going to hear today from the State Department and Department of Justice regarding five treaties that are pending before this committee. Uh, first of all, we have two extradition treaties with Serbia and Kosovo. Uh, these treaties update a century-old treaty with uh, what was then the Kingdom of Serbia. Well, this earlier treaty continues to govern our extradition law with Serbia and Kosovo. It does not include the modern extra, uh, extradition principles the United States has relied on and included in its extradition treaties in recent years. For example, both treaties will be updated from list, what they call so-called uh, list treaties, whereby an offender may only be extradited under specific list of crimes to dual criminality treaties. Dual criminality allows for extradition for offenses that are crimes in both countries. Another important improvement is that both of these treaties will now allow for the extradition of nationals. Since 1990, the U.S. has supported the policy of allowing the extradition of nationals, a policy we have pursued with other nations in our recent extra, uh, extradition treaties. Both these modern principles, dual criminality and the extradition of nationals, were included in last year's extradition treaties with the Dominican Republic and Chile, two treaties approved unanimously by the Senate. As Mr. Swartz will discuss, uh, these updated treaties will improve the ability of our uh, Department of Justice in fighting terrorism and transnational crime. Next, we have two treaties which, if ratified, would establish maritime boundaries between the Republic of uh, Kiribati. Am I saying that right? Kiribati? Kiribati, all right, thank you. Um, and the Federated States of Micronesia and the United States. These treaties would formalize boundaries that have been informally adhered to by the parties. Because of improved, me improved methods of calculation, the State Department expects the treaty will create a small net gain of continental shelf jurisdiction and exclusive economic zone for the United States. Finally, we have the UN Convention on the Assignment of Receivables. This treaty was negotiated with significant U.S. assistance. As our uh, witness, Mr. Uh, uh, Visak, will note, the treaty substantially reflects U.S. law and is strongly supported by the U.S. Uh, uh, business community. In the letter to this committee, the Chamber of Commerce has noted that the convention, if ratified, will make it easier for U.S. small with small business, of which we are the chairman and ranking member of, to access additional financing. For example, if ratified, the convention would provide these businesses with more certainty. They will be able to secure lending based on their sales of goods and services to customers located in other countries uh, that, uh, that ratify the convention. Both the ranking member and I are uh, always focused on things that are helpful to uh, small businesses. The convention's rules will thus facilitate access to asset-based financing in which their foreign receivables serve as collateral. In February, President Trump signed an executive order on the core principles for regulating the U.S. financial system, establishing principles that will enable American companies to be competitive with foreign firms in domestic and foreign markets and advance American interests in international financing, financial regulatory negotiations and meetings. By agreeing to this treaty, we will be able to accomplish both of uh, those goals. The Senate plays a unique constitutional role in providing advice and consent on treaties. This hearing is part of that constitutional responsibility, and we always undertake our constitutional responsibilities soberly. So with that, 
Gentlemen, do we have a volunteer to go first? That would be you, Mr. Bisset. Oops, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. The rank, I yield uh, to the ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, and thank you to our witnesses for being here today. Um, I'm pleased that the committee is considering these five treaties before us. As was noted by Averill Haynes at a hearing last week, uh, deliberations before this committee relative to treaties have reached historic lows. And I think that most of my colleagues on the committee, um, both um, Republican and Democrat, are eager to reverse this trend and help enhance U.S. leadership in the world. The treaties we're deliberating today touch on a range of matters from international business to maritime boundaries and the rule of law, as the chairman has said. They not only further United States interests, but they raise standards across the globe. In this increasingly complex, interconnected world, we need the consistency and uniformity that treaties provide now more than ever. Um, if the Senate provides its advice and consent, um, the treaties that we're considering today will raise living standards and improve local economies and markets worldwide and in the United States. Um, and as Chairman Risha said, um, he and I serve as chair and ranking member of the Small Business Committee, so it's nice to promote anything that's going to help small businesses in the United States. The two extradition treaties that are before us also merit special attention because they're a testament to the advancement of the rule of law in our transatlantic community. And 20 years after the devastating war in the Balkans and over a century after the first treaty between the United States and what was then the Kingdom of Serbia, the United States, Kosovo, and Serbia are finally establishing a reliable, modern legal framework to help prosecute crimes and bring criminals to justice. And finally, in a world where border disputes continue to lead to bloodshed and war, the maritime border treaties with Micronesia and Kiribati demonstrate the power of diplomacy and dialogue. Now, while I continue to worry that recent threats and actions to withdraw the U.S. from international agreements will cause long-term damage to U.S. credibility and posture, I am encouraged by this committee's consideration of these important treaties today, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses and participating in more treaty hearings to come. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Turn to our panel of witnesses, and first, uh, Mr. Richard Visak, who's the acting legal advisor at the State Department. Mr. Visak. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, ranking member. Uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I am pleased to appear before you today to testify in support of five treaties being considered by the committee. Uh, before proceeding with brief remarks, I'd note that I did prepare a, a more detailed statement, and I'd ask that that be submitted. That'll be included in the record, Mr. Thank Mr. you. Thank you very much for doing that. The five treaties before the committee are the extradition treaties with Kosovo and Serbia, the maritime boundary delimitation treaties with Kiribati and the Federated States of Micronesia, and the United Nations Convention on the Assignment of Receivables in International Trade. The administration appreciates the committee's prioritization of these treaties. Individually and collectively, these treaties advance U.S. interests. The extradition treaties will enhance our ability to combat transborder criminal activity. The maritime boundary treaties will improve our ability to explore, benefit from, conserve, and manage the natural resources of our marine area, uh, maritime areas. And the Receivables Convention will help U.S. businesses gain access to capital. 
The administration supports each of these treaties and urges the Senate to provide its advice and consent to their ratification. Let me say a few words about each of these treaties and then I will be pleased to respond to the committee's questions. The two extradition treaties pending before the committee will update our ex existing treaty relationships with two law enforcement partners, Kosovo and Serbia. The continuing growth in trans-border criminal activity underscores the need for increased international law enforcement cooperation. Extradition treaties are essential tools in that effort. The U.S. extradition relationships with Kosovo and Serbia are currently governed by a 1901 treaty between the United States and the Kingdom of Serbia. The two treaties now before the committee would establish modern extradition relationships with both countries, allowing us to engage in closer and more effective law enforcement cooperation. For example, as the chairman noted, the proposed treaties adopt the dual criminality approach contained in our other modern treaties. This allows extradition for offenses punishable in both states by imprisonment or deprivation of liberty for a period of one year or more. The treaties also contemplate the unrestricted extradition by each treaty party of its own nationals by providing that nationality is not a basis for denying extradition. Given that Kosovo and Serbia permit extradition of their nationals only pursuant to a treaty or international agreement, this will allow for each state to extradite its nationals to the United States. My colleague Bruce Swartz from the Department of Justice will address these treaties in further detail. The Maritime Boundary Treaties with Kiribati and the Federated States of Micronesia delimit the Exclusive Economic Zone, or EEZ, and Continental Shelf between the United States and these countries. Delimited boundaries provide legal certainty that enhances our ability to explore, benefit from, conserve, and manage the natural resources of our maritime areas, including with respect to our fisheries. The treaties provide for the delimitation of the boundaries on the basis of equidistance. With appropriate technical adjustments, each treaty formalizes boundaries that have been informally adhered to by the parties and that are very similar to the existing limit lines of the EEZ asserted by the United States for decades. Because of improved calculation methodologies and minor coastline changes, the four new maritime boundaries in these two treaties will result in a small net gain, primarily with respect to Kiribati boundaries of United States EEZ and continental shelf area relative to the relative to the existing limit lines of our EEZ. The form and content of the two maritime boundary treaties are very similar to each other and to previous maritime boundary treaties between the United States and other Pacific Island countries that have entered into force after receiving the Senate's advice and consent. The treaties clarify the geographic scope of our sovereign rights and jurisdiction, and they reinforce <clears throat> other countries' recognition of the U.S. EEZ and continental shelf entitlements around the U.S. islands in question. The Convention on the Assignment of Receivables in International Trade establishes uniform international rules governing a form of financing widely used in the United States involving the assignment of receivables. Expanded access to receivables financing in international trade, which the Convention would promote, will provide American businesses an additional source of, of capital at no cost to the U.S. taxpayer and require no material change to existing U.S. laws. This should particularly benefit small and medium-sized businesses that use re receivables financing. The convention, which is largely based on U.S. law, provides modern uniform rules for transactions in which businesses either sell their rights to payments from their customers to a bank or other financial institution, 
or use their rights to these payments as collateral for a loan from a lender. Such transactions enable businesses to obtain greater access to capital and credit at lower cost. The negotiation of the convention was supported by the U.S. Uniform Law Commission and the members of the American Law Institute, which developed the applicable provisions of the U.S. Uniform Commercial Code that govern receivables financing in each state in the United States. Members of both organizations participated in the U.S. delegation as the convention was being negotiated. In addition, a committee of experts with participation by both organizations recommended understandings and declarations to accompany U.S. ratification of the convention aimed at assuring consistency with practice under U.S. law and facilitating application of the convention in the United States. The executive branch's proposed set of understandings and declarations is consistent with these recommendations. The convention enjoys wide support in the U.S. business community. Leading U.S. business associations, including the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, have urged U.S. ratification of the convention. Thank you for the opportunity to testify in support of these treaties. I would be happy to respond to the committee's questions about them. Thank, thank you. you very, thank you very much, Mr. Bisek. We're now going to hear from Brian Schwartz, who's the Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Counselor for International Affairs. Mr. Schwartz. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Members of the committee, the two modern extradition treaties with Kosovo and Serbia that are before the committee today directly advance the interests of the United States in fighting international terrorism and transnational crime. Mr. Chairman, as you noted, uh, both of these treaties update and replace the 1901 treaty between the United States and the Kingdom of Serbia. As was typical at the time of the uh, 1901 treaty, this, this was a, these were list treaties at that period. That is, they set out a series of offenses, a rather narrow set of offenses subject to extradition. Those treaties at the time also did not require the extradition of nationals. The modern extradition treaties before you, in contrast, update and deal with both of these defects, and in so doing, protect American citizens and advance our law enforcement interests. The treaties accomplish this in four different respects. First, as has been noted, it deals with the issue of nationality <clears throat> as in a bar to extradition. And that has practical consequences for US law enforcement. Under the new treaties, uh, nationality will no longer serve as an obstacle to extradition. But under the existing treaties, we've encountered both with regard to Kosovo and Serbia, what happens when nationality can be a bar. So, for instance, with respect to Kosovo, the United States sought but was unable to obtain the extradition of a Kosovar national who committed murder and then fled back to Kosovo. Similarly, with regard to Serbia, nationality served as a bar to the extradition of a Serbian national who, while a student in the United States, committed a brutal assault on a fellow American and then fled back to Serbia. Neither of those results will follow under the new modern extradition treaties with Kosovo and Serbia. Will the new, will the new treaties uh, allow us to reach back or not? Uh, Mr. Chairman, they will. In the case of the, the treaty with Serbia, the, we can reach back as far as 2005. That is, uh, offenses from 2005 forward, nationality will not, will not be a bar. Uh, prior to that time, it will be discretionary. But we believe that will reach most of the offenses, particularly given the passage of time under the statute of limitations. But that also uh, leads, Mr. Chairman, to the second respect in which we have 
a significant advance in these treaties. And that's the substitution of dual criminality, as it's referred to, for the approach that just lists a particular set of crimes. Um, by taking out the perspective that only crimes listed in the treaty um, are the ones subject to extradition, we now have an approach that deals with the evolution of crime. So, for instance, the original treaty, the 1901 treaty, did not contemplate such crimes as cybercrime or particular forms of terrorism. Now, however, under the approach of dual criminality in which an offense that is punishable by more than one year of imprisonment in the countries, both countries, serves as a basis for extradition, we will be able to reach modern forms of criminality and we will have treaties that evolve as crime evolves. There'll be no need to change a list that exists. The third respect in which these treaties are a significant advance is their reach to extraterritorial offenses. Uh, here, too, we've seen the practical bar that can exist under the 1901 treaty. For instance, in the case of Kosovo, the United States sought the extradition of an individual who was engaging in material support of terrorism by using his computer in Kosovo to facilitate the travel of foreign terrorist fighters to Iraq and Afghanistan. Because the 1901 treaty does not reach offenses of that nature, extraterritorial offenses, because it only covers offenses that take place within the country seeking extradition. Extradition was denied as to that individual. But again, under the modern treaty, extraterritorial offenses will be covered, and that's particularly important for offenses such as terrorism and narcotics trafficking. And then in the fourth respect, the treaty has a number of provisions that expand and speed extradition. Those include provisions that make clear that when the United States seeks extradition from Kosovo or Serbia, it will be our statute of limitations that controls, not those of the requested state. Similarly, it streamlines provisional arrest, which is the ability to arrest a fugitive before a full extradition package is submitted. And it also allows for temporary surrender, which means that we can seek the extradition of someone being held in prison in Kosovo or Serbia for immediate trial in the United States and then return to have him or her serve out the remainder of their sentence in those countries. So in all four of these respects, we are overcoming not just theoretical obstacles, but practical obstacles that we've encountered with respect to our extradition relationship with Kosovo and Serbia. These represent significant advances, and they are consistent with the approach we've taken in modernizing our extradition treaties and extending the network of extradition treaties. We're very grateful for the support we've had from this committee for that process. We believe that together we've been able to ensure that fugitives have fewer safe havens around the world. And we therefore are very happy to have this opportunity to advance these uh, treaties. We would request respectfully that uh, favorable consideration by the committee, and I look forward to answering any questions you might have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to both of you. Uh, we're going to do a uh, round of questions here. Before I do, I'm going to include uh, two uh, pieces of correspondence the committees received, one from the Uniform Law Commission, National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, uh, supporting these. And then also uh, I'm going to include a letter from, uh, signed by a number of uh, primarily financial uh, institutions. And it's also in support uh, of the treaties, and uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is also a signatory to those. So with that, we're going to do some brief questions, and then uh, uh, we are going to submit some questions uh, for the record for you. Um, the first one I have, uh, and I don't know uh, 
which one of you wants to take a swing at this, but can you talk a little bit about the impact that uh, these, uh, either any of these treaties would have uh, as far as small business is concerned, gauge the importance of these treaties for small businesses uh, here in America? Mr. Visak, you look like you want to volunteer. Yeah. As, is, as is my nature. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. The, I think the benefits uh, for small to uh, mid-sized businesses will obviously be most prevalent with respect to the UN uh, Convention on Receivables uh, in international trade. I think the challenge for small businesses and mid-sized businesses is oftentimes obtaining uh, sufficient cash flow and, and working capital. And currently, U.S. companies uh, can be hampered in their ability to increase their exports because they have difficulty obtaining working capital financing based on receivables arising from the sale of exported goods. Um, these companies could obtain financing by offering their receivables as collateral for loans from U.S. banks and other lenders. However, these lenders often are unwilling to make loans secured by receivables owed by customers in other countries uh, whose laws are inconsistent with modern commercial uh, finance practice. Uh, they may also be deterred by the fact that they have to be concerned about perfecting their claims in multiple uh, countries for, uh, because of the, choice of the choice of law rules may not be clear. Widespread ratification of the convention would go a long way towards remedying this situation. Um, it's hoped that if the United States were to ratify the convention, which is in large measure dovetails with and is based on Article 9 of the Uniform Com Commercial Code, it would serve as a catalyst uh, and prompt other uh, nations to follow suit. And in turn, that would create greater uniformity and reduce the legal risks associated with cross-border transactions involving those countries. Um, and it would provide this sort of the uniform rules that uh, would go a long way uh, in sort of, if you will, uh, making it easier to obtain not only capital, but also financing for export receivables. Um, and in turn, this hopefully would uh, enable uh, small, mid-sized, and large companies to um, enhance the growth of their exports by U.S. companies because uh, they'd be able to obtain the financing. And in turn, that would presumably help U.S. companies uh, compete in the global marketplace and uh, create new jobs in the United States. Thank you. Mr. Schwartz? And Mr. Chairman, if I might add, extradition treaties also, although they're not oftentimes seen in this respect, um, serve as a benefit to U.S. companies, both large and small. Among other things, it makes possible the return of fugitives who have sought to defraud U.S. companies, and that's important for certainty that punishment will be uh, extended to those who have acted against U.S. companies. And it's particularly important under these modern treaties that cybercrime is now covered as well, since we know that through business email compromise and other types of fraud schemes using the internet, American companies have been taken advantage of. So we fully expect these treaties will be of the interest not only of U.S. citizens, but U.S. companies as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Visek, you made reference to uh, uh, Chapter 9, Title 9 of the uh, UCC. When I was in law school, I wrote a treatise regarding uh, that, and I'm going to spare you the niceties of, uh, of going into the details of that. Uh, at the risk of putting my colleagues to sleep uh, over there. Uh, one last question. Uh, we have, uh, this committee has uh, at times over the years considered the, uh, what we call the Law of the Sea treaties. It's actually a UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. 
Does the, uh, the one treaty we've discussed here between uh, the Republic of uh, Kiribati, uh, the United, Federated States of Micronesia and the United States, does it have any connection, any effect, uh, have anything to do with the uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea Treaty? Uh, the short answer is that the uh, accession of the law to the Law of the Sea Convention is a separate issue from the uh, Federated States of Micronesia and the Kiribati Maritime Boundary Treaties. Uh, these are treaties, the boundary treaties are treaties between the United States and those respective nations, uh, and they establish uh, uh, EEZs that in many ways uh, uh, resemble and, and the uh, existing EEZ limits to that uh, all the parties informally recognize currently uh, what it would do is, in effect, uh, codify those in the form of a treaty and, in doing so, would provide greater support for them. But they are independent of the what is known as the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Uh, and with respect to the Law of the Sea Convention, I think Secretary Tillerson, during his confirmation uh, process, said that he would examine the Law of the Sea Convention uh, to determine whether it is in the continued best interests of the United States to become a party. Uh, and I, if I uh, recall correctly, the, uh, the chair of the committee, uh, Senator Corker, sent uh, a letter to the State Department asking about our treaty priorities, and we are in the process of consulting an interagency uh, in conducting that review. Thank Appreciate you. that. Back to the one that's in front of us. Does the text of it make any reference to or suggestion about the uh, Law of the Sea Treaty or Convention? Uh, Senator, without having an encyclopedic memory, I, but it's my understanding it, is it does not. Would you double check that and yes, we confirm that in writing? Thank you. Ms. Swartz, do you have anything to add to this? No, Senator, I do not. Okay, thank you very much. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. <coughs> Chairman. Um, Mr. Visek, currently only one country, Liberia, has ratified the UN Convention of the Assignment of Receivables, and Five countries have to ratify the treaty. Can you tell us which countries after the United States should we ratify are most likely to follow suit? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, unfortunately, I do not have a crystal ball. I can tell you that uh, other states that have signed are Madagascar and Luxembourg, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the United States. I think, though, what makes this convention particularly ripe at this point uh, is that there is increased interest in receivables financing globally as the global economy develops, both uh, Asia and Latin America. And the EU itself is looking at the issue of receivables, receivables financing. The convention was in large measure based on U.S. law. Um, the, I'm reminded of when I studied the Uniform Commercial Code, which was in 1985, and I, I felt somewhat emboldened at that point, only to find out that the Article 9 had been, ex had been amended in the late 90s. But it was also about that time, shortly thereafter, that the uh, convention was being negotiated. So it was very much informed by UCC Article 9. I think the way we look at this is, if the United States has not ratified the convention that is based on its own uniform commercial code and is consistent with the laws of all 50 states, that sends a negative signal. If we do ratify, and given the, uh, the nature of our law, uh, and we obviously think we should, 
uh, given the importance of the United States uh, to uh, the economic global environment, I think that would serve as a powerful catalyst for other nations to follow suit. It would also influence discussions and consideration in various uh, nations and within the EU, for example, uh, on how to approach uh, the financing of receivables. I hope that answers your question. That's helpful. Senator Risch has already talked about the potential impact on small and medium-sized businesses in the U.S., which I just want to reiterate, I think is also very important. And as I understand, one of the benefits of this treaty is that it would allow um, business to use international trade deals that they have already negotiated as collateral for borrowing. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? That is correct. Thank you. So I think it would have a real benefit in that respect to many of our small and medium-sized businesses. Um, Mr. Schwartz, I understand that most extradition treaties bar extradition for political offenses, but the two extradition treaties before us today, as I understand, limit the scope of that exemption. Can you describe how the exemption has been narrowed, and is this a common feature among extradition treaties? Thank you, Senator. Yes, we have sought to ensure that the political offense exception is not misused to apply to uh, offenses that we consider to be crimes, such as murder, terrorist offenses, or other similar acts. Um, so it has been the policy of the United States and in the prior uh, treaties to which this committee and the Senate have given advice and consent to have a list of offenses that are not covered by the political offense exception. So that covers multilateral offenses, so the offenses under our various terrorism conventions, covers murder, kidnapping, assault, and similar offenses. This the, uh, the treaty, the treaty with Kosovo, and similarly the treaty with Serbia, both add to the offenses, offenses involving uh, chemical, biological, or radiological weapons uh, a further advance that we wanted to solidify in these conventions to make clear that individuals using such weapons cannot claim that they did so in a political basis and therefore should not be subject to extradition. It also has a number of other provisions that uh, make clear that conspiracy or attempt to engage in such activity is also not a basis for refusing extradition. Good, thank you. So how does our Department of Justice account for different perceptions and standards of evidence among different nations when we're looking at um, extradition treaties? Senator, thank you for that question because it does touch on an important point. When we receive an extradition request, which first is transmitted through diplomatic channels to the State Department and assessed at State Department for consistency with the treaty before it's sent to the Department of Justice, we at the Department of Justice at our Office of International Affairs consider in the first instance whether as prosecutors we believe that the evidence submitted establishes the standard, the legal standard required in the United States for extradition, and that's probable cause. It's not a, it's not a hearing on the a full trial on the merits, but it's probable cause. And so the evidence submitted to the Department of Justice through the State Department from the foreign country has to be sufficient in our perspective to submit to the court and then significantly the court has to find that probable cause exists on the evidence provided. So regardless of the standards of evidence in other countries, we consistently apply the same standard to our extradition requests here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Senator Keene. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses for your work and for being here today. I, I find each of these treaties uh, unobjectionable. Look forward to supporting them unless I end up with an odd question or two, in which case I'll reach back out to you. I, I actually wanted to ask you, as a way of sort of fleshing out philosophy on these matters, we had a hearing recently in this committee about sort of the, the role of the administration and Congress on treaties, on things less than treaties, executive agreements. And one that troubled me recently was the decision the United States to withdraw from the Global Compact on Migration, uh, known as the New York Compact, that the administration announced two weeks ago. Now, I, I would like you to correct me if I state this wrong. My understanding is the New York Compact was a non-binding um, agreement done in the UN General Assembly in September of 2016 that essentially acknowledged the increasing severity of the global migrant and refugee crisis and asked nations to commit to participating in a dialogue about sort of new best practices for dealing with this. Um, this is something that the president has spoken about, about the problems of migrants and refugees, and I think the president's right. I may have some different ideas from the president about how to deal with it, and we would all have different ideas, but I don't think you can turn a blind eye to the fact that the specter of global refugees, not just driven by war or violence, but now weather emergencies and droughts and other uh, significant issues are turning uh, refugees and migrants from sort of an episodic emergency management challenge to sort of a permanent reality, which they may have well been throughout time, but I think the world is coming to grips with that. The compact uh, involved a meeting in Puerto Vallarta last week, and shortly before the meeting, the administration announced it was gonna pull out of the compact and not attend this meeting to discuss best practices. As a, uh, an editorial opinion, I don't see how the world deals with this problem uh, as effectively as the world can deal with it without the U.S. at the table. And the administration's asserted rationale for pulling out was that this non-binding compact would intrude upon U.S. sovereignty. Now, in each of these instances, the four treaties before you, there could be sovereignty issues that would be raised, and we hashed them out, and it looks like over time we've gotten to a good point. But I couldn't understand why a non-binding compact would raise sovereignty concerns. And I wanted to ask either of you whether your offices were involved either in the original work on the New York Compact in September of 2016, or the decision or advice around the decision that led to this administration to withdraw from the compact and withdraw from the meeting in Mexico. Senator Kane, I, I certainly appreciate your concerns. Um, uh, however, this is uh, an issue that I'm not well versed in. I, I apologize for not being more so. Uh, and what I would commit though is if we could take that question back and provide you with a, a written answer. Um, that, that would be fine, and I'll ask a specific one for a written answer, but can I just ask, that the only question I really asked was whether your office was involved in either the, dis, the discussions around the New York Compact in September 2016 or the decision to remove. I hadn't asked a substantive question yet, just w w was this in the province or jurisdiction of your office within, a, within the Department of State? I understand that we were. Uh, consulted. I don't know the extent of those consultations, but uh, certainly we could uh, address uh, your question great. in writing. Then I'll ask that specifically for the record. Mr. Schwartz. Uh, thank you, Senator. From the law enforcement perspective, my office was not 
involved in this matter, but I will also go back to my colleagues at the Department of Justice and respond uh, more generally in connection that, with that, the that would be helpful because I think this is, it is a law enforcement matter. I mean, I, migrants and refugees are a humanitarian crisis and disaster, but one of the reasons the president often talks about this correctly is that within migrant, migrant or refugee flows, you know, uh, cunning people can hide or spirit people across borders to try to undertake acts of terrorism, to try to involve in poaching, human trafficking. The migrant refugee problem can often be a mask for real law enforcement concerns. And I think the idea, as I understood it, for the Puerto Vallarta meeting was to talk about all of those aspects of migrants and refugees. So I'm asking a question that has both a humanitarian and a national security and a law enforcement um, perspective. So we will craft particular questions for the record uh, about this uh, and would look forward to your responses. Thank you. Thank you, Senator King. Uh, well, with that, uh, we want to thank you both. Oops, I'm sorry. Another round, Senator? Yes, please. Oh, all right. Senator Shaheen has a little bit more for you. Um, I wonder, I guess this is for you, Mr. Schwartz. I, I know that um, we have a lot of extradition requests with um, countries. Are all of our extradition treaties with the United States more or less the same? Are there exceptions? Senator, thank you uh, for that question as well. And it does go to the heart of the um, program we have underway to modernize our treaties. Uh, and the answer is no, they are not all the same because they extend back into the 19th century in some cases. Uh, and as you know from this hearing to the 1901 with regard to these two uh, countries before the committee today. So we have, we have sought uh, in recent times to ensure consistency and uniformity in the new extradition treaties we negotiate. There are some differences depending on particular countries. But by and large, we've sought, uh, as Mr. Chairman, you noted from the 1990s forward, to ensure the extradition of nationals, to eliminate the uh, list treaty approach going forward with dual criminality. So we seek uh, in that respect to try and have a modern approach across all of our treaties. And if I might ask, uh, Mr. Chairman, just if my testimony, which also touches on this question, my written testimony could be submitted for the record as well. I'd be grateful. We'd, uh, we'd be happy to have that. And just to go back to my other question about the standards of evidence, are there other countries where we have ex extradition treaties that actually have higher standards of evidence than the United States? Do you know the answer to that? In, in Largely, extradition treaties do have similar standards for both sides. The, the, uh, we sometimes there are issues about exactly how each country interprets the approach, but in, in virtually all of our experience, the approach is one that looks to see whether or not some form of probable cause or reasonableness exists for the extradition. Some countries have re require a fuller production of evidence uh, than would be required in the United States and vice versa, but um, again, uh, largely across the broad range of our treaties, this, the approach is similar. Thank you, and this final question is really for both of you. How do we hand, handle terrorists, terrorists or armed insurgents under extradition treaties? Do we have any guidance that's different from other um, potential persons, <laughs> people that we're trying to extradite? 
Senator, one of the, the key aspects of updating our treaties is to reach terrorist offenses in particular. Uh, we have a strong commitment to pursuing terrorists worldwide to ensure that they do not have safe havens. So we have a, um, brought a number of cases uh, from countries around the world where we have extradition treaties seeking terrorists or others who have committed terrorist acts. And we have brought a number of those individuals back and successfully prosecuted them here in the United States. And do we have any countries who have not been willing to give up um, terrorists who, or people who we would determine to be terrorists um, and who they've refused to extradite to the United States? It's, uh, Senator, it's, it's an unfortunate fact that we do not win all of our extradition cases. Of course, that's always our, our goal. Um, with our, our key and trusted partners, we have... Uh, had a large degree of success with uh, this. Uh, denial is usually, if we have denials of extraditions, is usually not based on the, the individual being a terrorist or otherwise. There's uh, oftentimes considerations such as whether the individual has been prosecuted previously or other factors that may lead a country to deny extradition. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Shaheen. That, that's an excellent question. And we've also had the unfortunate circumstance that some countries uh, do this informally by simply hiding the individual as opposed to uh, doing it. That doesn't happen often, but we all, we all wish that there was a perfect world, but it isn't, and particularly with governments. So with that, again, thank you to uh, both of you uh, for participating. We're going to keep the uh, record open until the close of business on Friday, and there'll be some uh, uh, questions for the record that will be submitted. Gentlemen, if you would get your answers back as promptly as possible, we'll be able to uh, complete uh, this matter. And so with that, uh, the hearing will be adjourned.